There's so many places we could start this morning. I want to read you a quote. Our message this morning, by the way, is called Arrested. Seems fitting. This comes from Spiros Zahedi's book, What's Christ God? A native of interior China wanted to become a Christian, but couldn't understand how Christianity was superior to Confucianism and Buddhism. One morning he came to the missionary in a happy mood, saying, I dreamed last night, and now I understand what you've been saying. I dreamed I had fallen into a deep pit where I lay helpless and despairing. Confucius came to me and said, Friend, let me give you some advice. If you get out of your trouble, never get into it again. Then Buddha came and said, If you can climb up here to where I can reach you, I will help you. Then Christ came, and he climbed down into the pit, and he carried me out. We have the only wise God, friends. We have a king who reaches down to raise us up. He's not concerned with leaving you in your oppression. He's not concerned with leaving you where you are. This is not what occupies his mind. What occupies the mind and heart of God is how to free you, how to empower you, how to save you. This is the very heart of the king. In a nation with unemployment of nearly 8%, and that number so manipulated that you could barely believe it, it seems like a good place to start this morning would be the book of Job. I'm talking about the one between Esther and Psalms. Of course, we could call it Job if you like. Turn to the book of Job and catch the second chapter for me. There are so many conceptions about the book of Job. Mostly what you think of is suffering and of course bad friends. Am I wrong? Is this not usually what's associated with the book of Job? We say things like with friends like Job's, who would need enemies, right? Who wants to read 40 some odd chapters of drudgery and suffering? And yet, I challenge those assertions this morning. In Job 2.11, let's set a stage. Let's begin to see who Job's friends were. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and tore the robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering is. Just for perspective, let's go ahead and turn to the end of the book. You'll be in Job 42. In Job 42 in verse 7. There's been a great deal of dialogue. There's been 40 chapters since we last read. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz, this was the first of Job's friends, the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you 
and I will accept his prayer and will not deal with you according to your folly. So far, our summary of the book of Job in the second chapter and in the 42nd chapter fits the paradigm, doesn't it? We have three bad friends and we have suffering and this is how we usually sum up the book of Job. I want to introduce a new theme today. Let us turn to the ninth chapter in our message called Arrested. Tell me there when you were in the ninth chapter. In the ninth chapter, we can hear that Job is frustrated with his friend Bildad. They're in agreement about wickedness and the way that it ends in destruction. But they have an entirely different idea about what righteousness is. Let us talk in the 16th verse. Even if I summoned him and he responded to me, this is Job speaking, responding to Bildad. I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. He would not let me regain my breath, but would overwhelm me with misery. If it is a matter of strength, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who will summon him? Even if I were innocent, my mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, I would, it would pronounce me guilty. Although I am blameless, I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. It is all the same. That is why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds its judges. And then here is a great question. If it is not he, then who is it? You know, theologians argue about the age of this book. Some try to place it just after the time of Abraham. Some more liberal theologians place it in the 4th century B.C. A great many, though, place it before the flood. And I'm in that group. I believe that it's one of the more ancient poems that our world has preserved. Because God in His infinite wisdom wanted to answer some of the most ancient questions for us. If it is not God who is causing all of this suffering in my life, then who is it? What a great question, huh? Am I responsible for the difficulties in my life? Is God responsible or is there yet a third party? And could it be a mixture of more than one? Let's pick up in the 25th verse as he goes on to complain. My days are swifter than a runner. They fly away without a glimpse of joy. Can you say that Job's a pessimist? They skim past like boats of papyrus, like eagles swooping down on their prey. If I say I will forget my complaint, I will change my expression and smile. I still dread all of my sufferings, for I know you will not hold me innocent. Doesn't that sound like a child crossing his arms saying it's not fair? What does a parent say when their child looks at him and says, but it's, it's not fair? They say the world is not fair. We stand in a corrupted creation, one in which a rebellion is occurring. And the world is being neatly divided into those who will follow Yahweh God and those who will not. And so by default, they're following a prince of the power of the air. He reaps nothing but destruction upon mankind, nothing but spiritual violence. And when we sin, we yield to him and we further his purposes. But when we turn from our sin, something altogether different happens. Listen to Job's second question in the chapter. Since I am already found guilty, why should I struggle in vain? Have you ever been so exasperated, friends, 
so upset. No, your, your very best is already but filthy rags, so why even try? Am I the only one that's ever felt that way? No, no. Do you ever have a week where you were served with a lawsuit? A week where you were surprised with trouble after trouble? Yes. yes. And you wonder why do I get up each day and do what I do? I look out at the men of God that I admire most. We're fortunate to have many pastors in our congregation. Many men who have walked with the Lord for a long time. And I see how the storms and the waves buffet upon them. And you wonder, why do we do what we do? Job goes on complaining, even if I washed myself with soap in my hands with washing soda, you would plunge me into a slime pit so that even my clothes would detest me. Job is making a terrible, terrible mistake. He's charging God with responsibility for his guilt. Even if I were clean, Lord, you would make me dirty. Listen to this complaint, and in it we hear man's cry since the garden. He is not a man like me, that I might answer him. That we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both. Someone to remove God's rod from me, so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him. But as, it now, but as it now stands, I cannot. The cry of the lost man. His life is futile. No matter what I do, I'm already guilty. Everything that I touch blows up in my face. And if it's not God doing it, I have no understanding of who is. If only there were someone to put his hands upon God's shoulder, his hand upon mine, someone to make peace. I don't know a man like me that I might speak to him and we could understand. Oh, has such a man been sent? Amen. Job is crying out for an arbiter, a mediator, a counselor. I have seen people in situations that were so overwhelming to them. You were more worried about the effects of anxiety and fear in their life than the actual threat. But boy, they get a good attorney. Let Johnny Cochran show up. And all of a sudden they are walking tall, aren't they? Do you know that secular society, Gentile pagan society, understands the need for an arbiter? To the extent that you may have heard these words before. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, an attorney will be provided for you. Anybody recognize those words? Raise your hand. Now I hope it's from watching TV and you don't have personal experience of it. When I was a little boy, <coughs> my father was driving too fast and he was holding a barley beverage that you're not supposed to have when you're driving. And he ran through a red light and then shoved his beer under my seat because he saw the police officer on the other side. As he was pulled over on the side of the road, they handcuffed my father. As a little boy, that was horror in my life. 
absolute shock. Where am I going to go? What am I going to do? My parents were divorced at the time. I thought this is surely the last time I will ever see my father. Can you understand what that would be like for a child who was seven or eight years old? My father was calling on what was then a bat phone, right? It's like a car battery with a, with a giant phone attached to it. You know who his call was to? His attorney. His attorney met him at the jail. Of one thing we are certain, my father was guilty. But he felt better just having his attorney in the room. What would you think if the attorney was his brother? And when the attorney walked into the courtroom, he said, Hi, Dad, to the judge. Would you feel a little better about your situation if you were me? Well, that's not how it turned out for him. But it is how it can turn out for us. We have a counselor, friends. We have a mediator. And his father is the judge. And the judge has actually entrusted all judgment to who? To the son. You may be guilty. In fact, let's just get real. We are guilty. But we have a counselor. Somebody turn to Psalm 61. We'll come back to Job. Psalm 61. Listen to these words. It's the word, it's the cry of a man who had a counselor. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. I long to dwell in your tent and to take refuge in the shelter of your wings. You have heard my vows, O God. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Listen, saints, there is a rock that is higher than you are. It's like you're drowning in a sea that was not your making, but you have definitely contributed to its depth. And you're reaching out, crying out to someone who can save you from the pit. And when you find that step up, when you find that rock that is a sure foundation, that is above the waterline, you cling to it. There was a story off the coast of India when the British were ruling India. A young British boy sailing with his parents dashes against the, the reef outside India. And there is a rock that grows up out of that reef near the tip. Every person perished except the little boy. And the shipwreck was at night. And when they found him, they found him waist deep in water. They said, how is it that you survived? He said, I clung to the rock. And they said, did you tremble and shake as the waves beat about you? He said, I did, but the rock did not. Amen. Come on, saints. There's a rock that is higher than us. And you may shake and you may falter, but he never will. There is a sure foundation for your feet. I want to encourage you to hide in the shelter of his wings. To call out to your advocate. Save me. Help me. Oh, so many times we think of this as a salvation prayer. And the problem with our salvation prayer is that it is a single prayer at the beginning of our salvation. My salvation prayer is yet ongoing. He saved me yesterday. I need him to save me today. He'll probably have to save me. 
I hide in the shelter of his wings. Come on, saints. Do you want to be in his presence? Yes. With all of my heart, I want the rock that is higher than I. So we see that the book of Job is not about suffering only. It's also about the need for a mediator. It's about the need for a rock that's higher than you. The need for an arbitrator. Someone who will lay his hand upon you and lay his hand upon God and make sense of all of this suffering. Turn with me to the 32nd chapter of Job. Say there when you were there. Oh, Jesus, we love you. Yes. We love you, mighty God. We thank you. Holy Spirit, have your way in this service. The strong bulls of Bashan have surrounded us. But we will throw in our lot with the Son of David, the King of Kings. And he will lift us up so that our feet do not dash against stones. He will give us the feet of a deer. He will train our hands for battle. And he will crush our enemies before us as fine as the dust of the earth. Are you in Job 32? In Job 32, we have had three men going on and on and on. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. These are the same men that showed up in the beginning of the conversation. And they're the same men that God was so angry with, he said so out loud. And then he required these men to offer sacrifices and beg for Job to forgive them. And if Job forgave them, God would forgive them. But in chapter 32, we have a man who was not included in the three. He was not included in the three at the beginning of the book. He was not included in the three at the end of the book. He's like a fourth figure in the fire, so to speak. One with right counsel. Look at verse 6. So Elihu, son of Barakel, the Buzzite, said. Isn't that a great word, Buzzite? Has special meaning to me, but I won't go into that now. <laughs> I am young in years, and you are old. That is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. There are two things that you should definitely glean from this verse. One is, if you are young, you should learn to listen before you speak. The book of James confirms this. I am your 38-year-old pastor, and I am confirming it. When speaking with men that are older than myself, there is a proper way to do this. We need to correct older men like they were our fathers. Deal with older men as if they were loving older brothers. The Bible teaches this, and it's wise. It's right that this man held his tongue until... Something else happened. Look at verse 7. I thought age should speak. Advanced years should teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in a man, the breath of the Almighty, that gives him understanding. Elihu, whose name means God is he, had a fundamental understanding that he had no wisdom. He was young. But that God's spirit in him could give him wisdom. He affirms this in the 8th verse. Look at the 18th verse. He says it again. Oh, before we do that, while we think of the young, I told you two things it confirms. One is you should be quiet. The second comes from the book of the first letter to the Corinthians. It would be the 6th verse, I'm sorry, the 6th chapter and 4th verse. 
He says you can take even men of little account and let them judge these matters. We are not dependent upon a man's pedigree. We are not dependent upon the wealth of a man's experience. We are dependent upon the Spirit of God. Amen. Experience is a good thing and we will never shy away from it. Age and wisdom are great things and we should cling to them. But there is nothing that supersedes the need to hear from the Spirit of God. Look at verse 18. For I am full of words and the Spirit within me. What's that word? Compels me. Inside I am like bottled up wine, like new wineskins ready to burst. Do you know that this is only mentioned three times in all of the Bible besides here? Wineskins ready to burst. We have it once in the book of Job. And then we have it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. Perhaps in Matthew 9. You don't have to turn there. I bet you'll be familiar with it. In the 16th and 17th verse, he begins speaking about patches. that are shrunk and unshrunk cloth. By the 17th verse, he says, no one pours new wine into old wineskins because they will burst. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins. I want to tell you, saints, you may have heard a thousand messages on the book of Job. You may have heard 10,000 messages on Jesus. But this morning and every morning, we need to seek to make our hearts new, fresh, recreated in the presence of God. As soon as we begin to lean on all that we know and all of boxing God in to what we know. You should be guided by your wisdom. I hope we're all guided by our experience and our age. But this young man gets something right when no one else does precisely because he knew he had nothing besides what God was giving him. Oh, there's a message in this. Do we not have to become like children to inherit the kingdom? Do we not have to become like these little ones to inherit the kingdom? Every time man has sought out knowledge, it puffs up. <coughs> Love will build us up. I'm no different than any person here. I get very proud of the things that I know. I swell with pride. You have to grease me to slide me through a door if I'm not careful. And praise be to the living God. He will appoint a crusher in your life. And this is not because he hates you. It's because he loves you. Eli who is about to elucidate for these other men who are all older and wiser and more set in their religion than he is. Something they had not considered. Perhaps God is simply disciplining Job so that he will become even more fruitful. Pruning the tree, so to speak. Previously unmentioned one more time, look at 33.3. My words come from an upright heart. My lips sincerely speak what I know. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. This young man resolved himself in his heart to not share from what he thought was right, to not share from his vast wisdom of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but instead, only the words the Lord gave him. And so unlike the other three, he escapes the rebuke at the end of the book. He escapes the atoning sacrifice for the folly of his words. 
It seems almost as if Elihu was not even invited to this discussion. Like maybe he was outside of it, watching it, but just could not stand by because of something the Spirit was speaking to him. Before we move on, let's read the sixth verse together. Is that okay? Y'all have gotten quiet. Are you sleepy? In the sixth verse, I am just like you before God. I too have been taken from clay. If this is not ringing in your ears, it ought to remind you of Galatians, the sixth chapter and the first verse, where the Apostle Paul says something to the effect of, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch out yourselves, or you also may be tempted. It's not enough to hear from God. It's not enough to simply have a right word. We have to have a right heart. Otherwise, we may fall into the very same thing that we're trying to correct and add to the depth of that ocean that we're all drowning in. There is only one who has ever been right every time. There's only one who you can measure your life by. There is only one standard, and he is the rock who is higher than I. Oh, that we would be arrested in his presence today. That his spirit would move through the room. Some of us need to be encouraged, and I can see it in your eyes. There is an advocate, friends. What is the great message that Elijah overcomes his youth and speaks to older, wiser men to bring? I believe that we might start it, say, in verse 23. Yet if there is an angel on his side... This word is malach in Hebrew. It means messenger. Yet if there is a messenger on his side as a mediator, one out of a thousand to tell a man what is right for him, to be gracious to him and to say, spare him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom for him. Then his flesh is renewed like a child's. It is restored as in the days of his youth. He prays to God and finds favor with Him. He sees God's face and shouts for joy. He is restored by God to His righteous state. What does a mediator do? A mediator finds a ransom for you. Come on now. If you were arrested, who would you call for bail? It better be somebody that loves you, huh? Amen. Many, many years ago, I was in the car business, and we were taught to ask a question a certain way. I'm going to admit to you up front, it's a manipulation. But if it didn't work, they wouldn't do it. So let's suppose that we pulled your credit, and you can't afford to pay attention. You've been offered that one lump sum program, the Chinese finance, right? The salesman comes back in, and he says, Matthew, we have a problem. You haven't paid your debts. Your name is Sully. Here's the line. Who loves you, Matthew? Who would sign for you? Who will put their name in the place of your name? Then you know what you do as a salesman? You shut up. You leave them there with that contemplation. As a pastor, I can't imagine doing this today. These are things you teach 18 and 19 year old salesmen to do because they're too stupid to know just how uncomfortable this actually is. 
Sometimes people get up and cry and walk out. Other times they pick up a phone because they know there's a grandma, there's an auntie, there's one of you people here with a heart bigger than our wisdom. And we'll co-sign for it. I signed a property bond for a man to get out of jail one time and then Matthew and I had to leave the house in the middle of the night with a map, a compass, a flashlight, and some duct tape. You can guess what those things were for. But I did not lose my house. Who loves you? Who will put his name in the place of your name? Some people have to leave the room crying with that because they don't know of a single one. But I'm here today to tell you there's someone who will allow you to use his name when yours has been sullied. To use his credit with God when yours has been ruined. To rely upon his reputation when you have none. That name is Jesus, friends, and we ought to shout it to the heavens. It is Jesus. It is Jesus. How dare we not honor that name? He gives you credit you don't have. He gives you a reputation you don't deserve. He gave you the power of attorney to use even his father's reputation. He said, ask anything you like in my name, and it will be given you. All saints. He goes on to say that when we pray after this ransom has been found for us, we find favor with Him, see God's face, are restored to a righteous state. Three things. Favor with God, see God's face, and are restored to a righteous state. Oh my goodness, what would you give to know that you had favor with God? What would you give to see His face? What would you give to walk out of this place in a righteous state? MasterCard used to run commercials that would say priceless at the end. Is this not truly one of the more priceless things, the only truly priceless thing in all of creation? That you would have favor with God? That you might see His face? That you might be restored to a righteous state? And then what is the reaction of the person who has done all of these things? It's in verse 27. Then he comes to men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, but I did not get what I deserved. What is our testimony, friends? We found favor with God. We get to see His face. This is the ironic blessing that His face would shine upon you. And that you would be credited with righteousness. And then what happens? Our testimony is He's done all of these things for me. But I am in the camp that perverted His way. And yet He did not pay me back what I deserved. That's the story of all God's people. When you find people who claim to love the Lord... But they are very righteous in their own eyes. You have to wonder whether they've seen God's face. Because that reflection is so perfect. It is so beautiful. That you can't help but see the difference between you and Him. And ask for His mercy to make up the difference. Is there a man, woman, or child in this room that needs mercy today? You can say so. Do you need mercy today? doing my best, just like you are, 
to walk with a clear conscience before God. The truth is Christianity is a compact sport. This is not Breck League where everybody sits on a bench and we all go to McDonald's afterwards. When you're trying to get something done for the king, you often run over your friends. You often miss a block that you should have thrown for your friends. You often get confused in the fog of war and say things you shouldn't and refuse to say things you should. But we have an advocate. We have someone who will credit us with his reputation. Look at verse 28. He redeemed my soul from going down to the pit. And I will live to enjoy light. God does all these things to a man twice, even three times. To turn back his soul from the pit. That the light of life may shine upon him. Does the living God want your life in a pit? Does he want to pour you down into hell? Does he want to step on you? Is he an angry God with you as sinners in his hands? Or does he long to show you mercy? Does he long to show me mercy? What could be more godlike then than loving each other and showing each other mercy? Perhaps this is why we see such a connection between Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. In Genesis 3, we see man breaks his connection with God by sinning. And in Genesis 4, we see man is killing man. But 1 John 1, 5-7 teach us that if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. You want to prove that you're close to God. You want to show that you're close to God. Then love people and show them mercy. Amen. You know when they need mercy the most? When they've wronged you the deepest. You know when you show love the most? When they're the most unloving. We are guaranteed, you and I, if we walk together long enough, we are guaranteed that I will wrong you. You know what I need from you? The same thing that you need from me. Mercy. We need love from each other. The living God shows fruit upon your tree when His Spirit makes you like Him. Not as knowledgeable as He is. Not as perfect in doctrine as He is. Makes you like Him in your actions. Oh, what a message that is. We could stop right there, but we're not going to. I figure as much opposition as we've had in this week, it's been 20 years since I physically threw someone out of a building. And back then, I used to physically get thrown out of buildings. I think if there is this kind of opposition, then we must have something worth mining today. By the way, I skipped over something. Have you ever done that? Have you ever meant to say something that you didn't? Look at verse 25. After the ransom. Then his flesh is renewed like a child's. It is restored as in the days of youth. What an important verse to have skipped over. When a ransom is paid for your life, what happens? You are restored. You are renewed. Is that not what Corinthians 15, 42 says? So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. We don't just have a God who teaches us to love each other. We don't just have a God who teaches us to be merciful or credits us with His name. We have a God who will literally roll back death from your life. He will raise you out of a grave in an incorruptible body to reign with Him 
for an eternity. This is the hope of Christianity, that there is a mediator. It occurred to me that many people see all 66 books of the Bible the same way they see Job. It's a book of suffering. It's a book that shows you how bad your friends are. When the truth is, whether we're speaking of Job or we're talking about all 66 books, this book is a book about a mediator. It is a book not about suffering, but about a loving God who is restoring us. Maybe the reason that we see Job in the wrong light is because we see the other 65 books in the wrong light. Whatever is difficult in your life, whether thorns are growing out of your garden or not, it was for your sake. The living God has a desire to raise you up, not push you down. He started with one nation and called them Prince with God. And he desires that every nation would be grafted into that blessing. He wants you to rule with him. He wants you to reign with him. He wants you to love like him, to show mercy like him, to heal like him, to talk like him. In short, he wants you to be Jesus. So he sent us Jesus. And Jesus put his hand upon my shoulder. And he put his hand upon the shoulder of the Father. And he made peace between the two. Because he found a ransom. Let us talk about that ransom. Is that okay? Why don't we do this? Turn with me to Isaiah 50. It's right there just to your right. I'm going to spare you my political joke about all good things being to the right. I guess I didn't spare you. I went ahead and said it anyway. In Isaiah 50, look at verse 2. When I came, why was there no one? When I called, why was there no one to answer? Was my arm too short to ransom you? Couldn't this have been said to Job? When he's whining, Lord, you plunged me into a pit. Lord, you would cause me slimy. Even if I were innocent, you would call me guilty. Could this not have been said? Did you think my arm was too short to ransom you, Job? Do I lack the strength to rescue you? Let me ask, how far did he go to ransom you? How far did he go to save you? Do I lack the strength to rescue you? By a mere rebuke, I dry up the sea. I turn rivers into a desert. Their fish rot for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the sky with darkness and make sackcloth its covering. Darkness and sackcloth covering the sky. Does that remind you of a particular day? When the sun went down from noon to three? When the earth shook and its foundations were laid bare? What else happened on that day? The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He wakens the morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. Do you mean to tell me that the very word of God was listening to his father teach him daily? If Jesus, operating as an anointed man, each morning had to hear from his father, then how altogether insufficient is our knowledge for today's trials? Oh, that we might have a poverty of spirit. 
when we know how badly we need His Word to burn inside of us, when we know how badly we need to be new wineskins that can handle the change and fermentation and empowerment of what God is pouring into us. Oh, saints, that we could be flexible and not so rigid. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. I offered my back to those who beat me. My cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. And I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he that will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment, like moths. They will be eaten up. Who among you fears the Lord? And who obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Saints, how far did he go to pay your ransom? He offered his back to those who were beating him. His cheek to those who were pulling out his beard. Like Paul, he resolved himself to know nothing except what the Father was speaking to him and showing him. When it comes down to it, how altogether prideful are we? We are so sure that we have the answer, so sure about the way things must be done. What kind of shape were we in before the mediator put his hands on us? Before he whispered in our ear, before he paid our ransom, I am so stubborn, so very full of pride that I would be hopeless if it were not for Christ who is being formed in me. I can be naive. You know, there's no cure for youth and inexperience except living. It's a famous debate line from Ronald Reagan and Walter Mondale. Everybody was saying Ronald Reagan was too old. Don't give the old man the atomic bomb. Don't let him hold the nuclear football. Don't let him do it. So in the debate, because commentators tend to lean a certain way, we won't tell you which side, but it's not to the right. They said, how do you think, President Reagan, age will play a factor in the upcoming election? Ronaldus Magnus was so quick on his feet. He said, I don't plan to exploit my opponent's youth or inexperience for a moment. <laughs> Talk about a spin machine. But the truth is, youth and inexperience is a liability. So is experience and wisdom when you come right down to it. Anytime we trust in our own arm, we're in trouble, friends. We need the rock that is higher than us. We need Him like plants need sunlight. There is no life outside of Him. As Isaiah said, His ways are higher than our ways. His words water us like snow waters the earth. 
Oh, Jesus, have we taken the time to hear what He's saying. I'll tell you the truth. When He calls us to the narrow way, it might be better said through experience that it is the ever-narrowing way. My early employment career, I was constantly working for men who had inferior talents. Wouldn't you think that if you ran a credit agency, something like Bank One Mortgage Division, that you would be able to read credit and title reports? So, I was placed under a manager who could neither read credit reports nor title reports. He needed someone else to explain them, and yet he was in charge of everything. How humbling is that? So I did what any good Christian would do. I whined and complained. I sought the Lord in prayer when the Lord did not answer me in prayer because He intended for me to be there. He intended for me to endure it. He intended for me to be shaped by it. I kicked and fought and I went to His boss above Him and said, do you know that this man is so incompetent that he cannot read a credit report? Now the obvious choice was standing right in front of him. The purely humble, entirely godly, young credit analyst, right? Man looked me right in the eye and said, he's an equal opportunity hire. Get over it. Shut the door. And I was not through talking. You think God was trying to teach me something? I want you to understand something, friends. The world is unjust. And we participate in it every day. He is the only one who is just. The currency of the kingdom has to be mercy or we will all end up blind. If we measure out an eye for an eye, the whole world will quickly become blind. The whole point is that none of us have this right. He's the only one that does. And we're desperately trying to hear from Him and what do you do? Two people hear something different. How? What do you do? Brother Jay was talking to me the other day. Jay Williams. He pointed out something I've never seen in Amos 3.3. In Amos 3.3 it says, Can two walk together unless they're in agreement? Well, I thought it was a rhetorical question. That's how I'd always seen it. And then the obvious answer was, No, of course we cannot. He pointed out something I never considered. It is a question. <laughs> it's a question. And it remains unanswered. It's a question in your life. Can Matthew and I walk hand in hand when we do not see the answer is no, then we are lonely people. Zeke and I have disagreed about many things. Zeke's usually right, I'm usually wrong. But we love each other. And it's going to help me get it right. And I'm going to help him get it right. This is the way the kingdom works, friends. You're going to have disagreements that cannot be cured. I had one with a young man at that door during worship. He's no longer with us. Let's not let ourselves be excommunicated from the love and mercy of God over silly disagreements. I finally come not in pairs, but in triplets and sextuplets. They multiply faster than rabbits do. And before long, the commands of God become a burden to us. 
when they were meant to be relieving of burdens for us. We just love each other. We just move forward. Can you say amen? amen. Do you need a mediator? Yes. Do you know you're guilty and need a mediator anyway? Yes. Friends, when you're innocent, you might go to court without the attorney. You might say the truth will speak for itself, but when you're guilty, you know you need the mediator. I know what that's like. It wasn't just before I was born again. It's been many days since then. Brian, I appreciated your testimony. I understand it. I understand it because we are weak and broken men outside of the presence of God. But when the mediator not only mediates for you, but he fills you with his spirit, for the first time in your life, you are capable of so much more. Amen. Come on, do you want more? Yes. I want more. I may mess it up Monday through Friday, but on Saturday and Sunday, I'm going to fight to get it right until I gain a third and fourth day of the week. <coughs> Got loved ones that are convinced the day of the week we worship on is wrong. Well, I love them. Let's worship on both days. Many of you have been with me in Home Depot and other places. You ever met a Seventh-day Adventist? Well, I'm a dirty Sunday worshiper. But are you going to love me or not? See, the kingdom moves forward when we choose to lift up the character of God above our doctrines. Y'all probably got that by now, huh? Let's do this. Let's move on to Matthew 20. You know, while you're moving to Matthew, you have to skip over the book of Jeremiah, don't you? Everybody loves Jeremiah 31. It's the new covenant, right? In Jeremiah 31, we get to hear that there's a new covenant. You know what else you hear about in Jeremiah 31? In the 10th verse. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Proclaim it in the distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those that are stronger than they. The same God who punished and scattered is the same God who will gather, heal, restore, and ransom. Any good relationship with the Lord is going to have a mixture of both. You're going to be disciplined because He loves you. You're going to be encouraged because He doesn't want your heart to faint. He will ransom you. In Isaiah 56, you don't have to turn there. The prophet is speaking and he says, Build up, build up, remove out of my people's way the obstacles because I, the Holy One who dwells in high and lofty places, also dwells with Him who is broken and contrite in heart to revive the spirit of the lowly. This is where the heart of our God is. He wants to meet you in your grief. He wants to meet you in your difficulty. He wants to raise you up. Brother Treister and I have chewed some of the same fat. We've treaded in some of the same water. We both know what it is to have other men not know what our motives are. And maybe assign some we didn't have. It happens, friends. Christianity is a contact sport, but what are you going to do? You're going to cling to that rock that is higher than you. You're going to love those around you. 
Yeah. You're going to travail in the name of Jesus. Yeah. Am I wrong? And you're going to drag as many as you can with you. Amen. That's the kingdom of God. If somebody tried to sell you something else, I'm sorry. But that's what the kingdom looks like. Do you like Paul? Anybody like Paul in the Bible? Raise your hand if you like Paul. You like Barnabas? What if I force you to choose one? Because even those men of God got into disagreements. When we say Paul and we say John Mark, you might think of a time Paul sent John Mark home and might forget that Paul asked for John Mark and said he was useful to him at the end of his ministry. The kingdom of God is made up of such events. This is how we mature, how we learn, how we grow. Now let us go to Matthew. Tell me there when you're there. You guys are fast. Matthew 20. If you're arrested, who would you call? You would call the counselor, friends. I read a legal brief last week. And it alleged all kinds of facts that any sane person knows are not true. That didn't mean I knew how to answer it. And while I'm innocent of these, there are a great many things I'm not innocent of. What a confusing situation. You know what the attorney said to Matthew and I? He laughed out loud. Said, this is a crazy man. I'll deal with him. You can leave now. I left a full six inches taller than I walked through that <laughs> I hope today you walk out of here six inches taller than you walked in. You know why? You have an advocate. In Matthew 20, let us pick up in the 24th verse. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Now, let me ask you, Bible scholars, what, what are they mad about? Two of them wanted to sit on his right and left. It's always the way of men to exalt ourselves. We don't even know we're doing it. We have to be very careful. And listen to what happens. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead... Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to... Oh, give us life as a ransom for many. Who are you giving your life as a ransom for? Who are you doing without something for their benefit? Now, one way to think about this would be the Kenya video. Do you see there were two dukes? One duke is five years old. Boy, he's a brash little dude, man. Another of the dukes is 12 years old. He's humble and quiet, you know. There was a little girl that is a songbird. You, you, you heard her singing, leading everyone. Who's advocating for them? Who's saying, I'll participate in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings for them. Who's doing it? See, this is an answer that goes, or a question that goes unanswered in the body of Christ so often. We know what we want the mediator to do for us, but we're unsure what we should do for others. How many parables were aimed at the subject? I would like to say that the sincerity of our Christian commitment is reflected in our deeds towards each other. 
This is one kind of ransom. You know what another kind of ransom is? Maybe I spit right in Matt's face. Maybe I stepped on his toes. But Matt looks at the overall direction of my life and goes, I know the brother loves me. And I'm more than willing to take that insult for him. Because Jesus took a great many for me. Oh, wouldn't this be a beautiful community of believers if we lived like that? If we were looking for how we could spend our lives for someone else in two ways. Doing without something for them. And also divesting ourselves of reputation for everyone else. What if we actually considered everyone else as superior to us? Unless God's word was burning in our hearts and we had to speak. See, because that's the message Elihu brought. Let's do this. Let's go to Hebrews 9. Say there when you're in Hebrews 9. God bless me for getting that Bible story. Huh? In Hebrews 9, let's pick up in the 12th verse. 11th verse. When Christ came, as high priest of the good things that are already here. He went through the greater and the more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but He entered the most holy place once for all by His own blood, having obtained eternal redemption the blood of bulls and goats, the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean to sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. How precious was the ransom, how perfect is the mediator, and how many were the sins. Have you ever been reading the Older Testament and thought, my goodness, I would not be in the camp one day out of the week. I mean, you didn't even have to sin. All you had to do was touch somebody on their monthly cycle. You didn't even have to sin. All you had to do was accidentally brush up next to somebody who had died. You, you could eat something that was wrong. This led to an atmosphere where they strained at gnats and swallowed camels trying to show themselves righteous. And the whole point was, it didn't show them righteous. It showed them unrighteous so they could come to a place where they would cry out for a mediator. Where are you at today? Do you need a mediator? Paul told Timothy, there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for many. We have only one answer. He is the rock who is higher than we are. Our last scripture today is Hebrews 12. After we read Hebrews 12, we're going to pray. We're going to pray for you. 
We're going to ask the mediator to come and do what he does best. Intercede on our behalf. Lay his hand upon us and God. And heal our wounds. You in Hebrews 12? Here comes verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. To the heavenly Jerusalem. The city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. What kind of assembly? Joyful. Oh, come on. If the heavens are joyful, how can we not be? If the angels are joyful and worshiping and saying, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, then how can we sit in silence? They're in joyful assembly. And you know what? They didn't have to get saved. We did. They are not the object of the Lord's affection. We are. Do we have more reason for joy or do they have more reason for joy? To the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. Oh my goodness, many of us are not only not our parents' favorite, we might not be the third or fourth born. But in God's economy, because the mediator has laid his hands upon you and God and made peace, you are now like God's firstborn son. There was a prophecy last Wednesday night about Mephibosheth, the little crippled boy who in 2 Samuel 9 sits at the king's table. Oh, has there ever been a more applicable word to us? Crippled in our every way, in debt over our heads. And the Lord has washed us, cleaned us, and called us, not just a child of God, the assembly of the firstborn. You can feel second class. The world can make you feel despised and rejected of men. But this is not how God sees us. It's how the world treated Jesus. Isaiah says he was despised and rejected of men. They beat him beyond recognition. But that is not how God sees us. He sees you in one of two categories. Somebody that he's longing to save. Or somebody that he is joyful about causing you to become like him. Two categories, longing to save or someone that has made the Lord joyful and he has poured that joy into you because he now calls you the firstborn son. What does it mean to be hidden in Christ? What does it mean to have the name of Christ? To be in the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men. To the spirits of righteous men made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Any other week, I would read that next line. Any other week, it's the next line that I would focus on. I just want to tell you today that God is not angry. And he doesn't have a stick in his hand. He's not here to smack you down. 
He's not here to prove you guilty. You were guilty when you walked through the door. He is here to clean you. He is here to love you. And He's here to teach you to do the same to everyone else. Friends, Job was wrong. God doesn't want to plunge you into a slime pit. He wants to make you His firstborn son. Amen. Let's stand to our feet.